0: Welcome everyone to today's webinar on a very interesting topic, vaccinations at work. My name is Wendy Favell, I'm an Executive counsel in the employment team in the Brisbane office. I'd like to start first acknowledging the Turrbal people, the traditional custodians of the land in Brisbane on where I am located today and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which each of our speakers and you, our audience, are living, learning and working from today. Now onto our topic. There are approximately 2,000 people who registered for this webinar today, which I'm told is, is one of the biggest audiences we've ever had to date. This just shows you how much interest there is in this topic, both on a personal and a professional level and how so many individuals and businesses are grappling with this landscape that is changing on a daily basis. We have a wonderful panel to help us canvas this complex topic. I'd like to introduce Alyssa Anderson, who is HSF's Australian HR Director, who's dealing with this issue on a very practical level for HSF as a firm. Mark Rigotti, a man who wears many hats, our immediate past global CEO a partner, a senior advisor of HSF and a chairman and a board director to give his insights into what the business community are doing. Nick Ogilvie, an employment law partner in our Melbourne team and Nerida Jessup, a special counsel leading the Sydney safety team, both of whom have been advising many clients in many different industries on this issue and, and helping them navigate their way through it. Look, there's no doubt that there are many benefits to vaccinations. We all know this, personal safety, the safety of loved ones, and, and more recently, certainly the pathway to freedom for those who are in the extended lockdowns. And there's many, many questions that we get on this topic um, on a daily basis about businesses' role in the fight against COVID-19, both from a policy perspective, what, what should we be doing, and also the legal perspective. So what what can we do and what are the legal risks with the steps that we're going to take? There's questions that we'll, we'll deal with today around, you know, how do we even know about the vaccination take up in our workplaces? Do we stick to the carrot and, and encourage vaccinations for our staff or do we take the stick approach and go as far as mandating vaccinations? I know that demand, particularly in Australia, demand for vaccines has, really been outstripping supply so it's a real issue about enforcing a mandatory vaccination policy at this time and we're going to have a bit of a talk about that you'll see in your control panel that there is a questions tab so um, while we'll, we'll navigate our way through the issues and with the panelists if you do have specific questions feel free to type that question into the questions tab and we'll get to as many as we can at the end of the session I'm sure this is the first of many webinars on this topic as it's certainly something that is changing week to week and the advice that we were giving a year ago is in a very different landscape to what we're giving today. I'd like to start with you, Alyssa, just turning to the carrot of incentivising vaccinations. I'm just keen for you to talk a bit bit about what HSF has been doing in this space to encourage the HSF team to be vaccinated.
1: Thanks Wendy and good morning everyone. So we started late last year by putting together some vaccine working groups across the globe to work through the policy considerations that I'm sure all in this virtual room have been uh, considering for some time we developed some global principles to assist in our decision making uh, on on this topic and we've had to evolve these over time uh, to respond to changing business sentiment and government requirements in some locations so for example um, initially one of our global principles was that we would not mandate vaccinations however in U.S. law firms, it's becoming business practice to require employees to be vaccinated. Um, and in other locations, governments, government mandates have had the same effect. So our, our team in the Riyadh office have to show that they are vaccinated in order to enter the building. So in terms of how we have encouraged vaccinations, we've focused on three things. We've focused on education, encouragement, and making it easy for people to get vaccinated. So in terms of education, we have prioritised giving our people information from reliable sources. And we started this process early in the year by engaging international SOS to um, have doctors talk to our people in February and August about vaccinations uh, based on the facts as they they were at the time. We asked our people to uh, submit questions prior to the webinar, just to make sure that we were answering and covering the things that were really on their mind. We made the webinar publicly available on YouTube for a period of time and we encouraged our people to share the vaccination webinar with their friends and family. And this was really well received. Another thing we've done is we've introduced a pay it forward initiative and a number of organisations have done this where we donate a double dose vaccination to a developing nation when one of our team members lets us know that they've had their first vaccine. And lastly, making it easy. So fortunately, we have a global hybrid working strategy, which enables our people to manage when and where they work. And so we've encouraged people to take the time they need to get vaccinated and manage their work and clients around that. So in terms of next steps, in terms of encouragement for for us, um, well. We're currently working on refining our vaccinations policies. We're keeping our ear very close to the ground because as you know, this is changing on a, a very regular basis. And we are considering how we can continuously refresh our approach to communication around encouraging vaccinations because the sentiment continues to change. Education is
0: so important. I've been to some of those sessions and they were really, really well received. I agree with that. Um, just. Alyssa, with the future of work involving more flexibility, and um, how do we balance reopening offices for work, having people spend more time in the office, which all, with all the benefits that that involves, when our people will be a mixture of those who are vaccinated and those who aren't?
1: Please through the home so we don't see the, um, the issue of vaccinations and return to work as being separate. We, we see it as part of our, our broader talent strategy. And I think, well, we all know that the pandemic has given organisations the opportunity to rethink the future of work. And, and interestingly, it's also awakened in our employees the possibilities of what the future of work could look like for them and their families. And so, so for employees, the psychological contract between them and their employer uh, has changed. The deal has changed. And people are reflecting on how their employer has uh, responded to their needs during the pandemic. And I think that they will be watching very carefully to see how employers um, respond to vaccinations in the workplace. So. In thinking about your strategy in this area, um, the most important steps an organisation can take is to truly listen to what their people are telling them. So, you know, if you think about it, employees are not only considering the challenges that they have every day in their roles, but putting on top of that home, uh, you know, working at home, lockdowns, homeschooling. And now they also have greater safety concerns to consider given Delta. So just in terms of answering your question, we need to build confidence so that employees are motivated to return to the office when they can, at least for some of the time. Noting that flexibility is a hygiene issue now. Um, and so how do you actually do that? How do you build that confidence? And I think it's a few ways. So I think first of all, encourage the highest vaccination rate that you can. So you do this by continuously refreshing your communications around um, vaccinations and making sure that they reflect the sentiment of the time. And that's what we're doing at the moment. A few more thoughts that we've had is around, you know, get a get a vaccines countdown going. Um, you know, create uh, you know, ask your employees to share photos of you know, the people that they will first see uh, when their um, restrictions are lifted. You know, I will be sharing a photo of my mum for example, Um, and perhaps considering clever campaigns around what will be the first thing I do when um, the the things become more more open and getting your your people involved in that. Um, The other thing is around building confidence that you've taken all reasonable steps to keep the workplace safe. So you might choose um, to uh, open your office to people initially that are vaccinated to enable time for others to get vaccinated. You may take those precautions that you would ordinarily expect to take around you know, appropriate distancing, uh, ventilation, masks, uh, cleaning, et cetera, creating bubbles, uh, splitting teams so that exposure times are, are limited. Uh, If you have a flexible or hybrid working policy, restating it and talking about the benefits of it, including the need not to be in the office for extended periods of time. And in terms of dealing with concerns, you know, I would encourage organisations where they can to do that at an individual level. And at least in the short to medium term, allow people to work from home if they can. And I say short to medium term, because for most organisations, the benefits of working in the office, whether that be connection, collaboration, learning, business clients, customers, remain unchanged. And so we will need to have an eye to the future. And then I guess lastly, is around keeping the dialogue going with your people. You know, this is actually key. Um, It's an opportunity to have a dialogue with your people at a very meaningful level and collect a more informed body of knowledge so that you can make decisions that will be supported.
0: Very interesting. Thank you, Alyssa. Nerida, turning to you, I know that you've done lots of practical advice with lots of businesses looking at different ways to incentivise vaccinations. One of the first questions I often get is, um, some people are hesitant about asking employees for their vaccination status. So, like, can we actually ask people whether they 're vaccinated or not, and if they do tell us what are the, what are some of the limits that we need to keep in mind in dealing with this information
2: yeah sure it 's a really common question and it 's a common question from workers as well where we We are in the process for a lot of our employees asking for this information, and uh, some workers are hesitant to provide it. Um, So vaccination status is sensitive information under privacy laws. It's subject to to higher protections uh, under privacy laws. And so there is a a bit of thinking through that needs to be done when we're deciding uh, why we're asking for vaccination status information, what we're planning on doing with that information uh, and how we can ensure that it is um, kept confidential um, and used only for the purposes uh, which it's been disclosed for. So the first kind of issue that you need to work through when you're thinking about asking for your workers' vaccination status is, why are we asking for it? Uh, What are we doing with the information? What what do we think we need to do with it in the future? Uh, And a lot of times uh, organisations will say, well, I guess we were just uh, kind of interested, you know, in which case it it might be um, an approach, a better approach for, for some organisations who aren't quite sure Uh, whether they're thinking of mandating vaccination status or they're just interested but they're not quite sure what they'll do with the information uh, for those organizations it actually can just be really worthwhile to obtain that data in kind of an anonymous aggregate way uh, rather than collecting it as personal information Um, so a really well thought through survey questions can be a really good source of data and it can be a really important part of the The consultation approach as well as we're working through whether we're going to mandate vaccination and and if we do um, how we're going to actually roll that out and implement it. We've seen some really good examples of that. I think there was the the well-reported survey questions uh, which which Qantas used to initiate its thinking through of of some of its vaccination mandate procedures. Um, So that is one option that we can just go that anonymous aggregate results route, and, and just make sure that we're shaping up that data in the survey question so that it's useful and, and we're actually going to, to gain some insights from it. On the other hand, there is we are entitled, employers are entitled to ask, um, to ask for, for vaccination status if they've got a clear and justifiable reason for doing so. So for some employers that might be, we're going to ask uh, the workers provide their vaccination status voluntarily um, in connection with some of these incentive schemes uh, we're seeing and, and Herbert Smith-Freehill, as you'll see, Alyssa mentioned, um, has our own, you know, has provided incentives for, for staff to vaccinate. If that's it, if we're asking for vaccination status merely to, um, you know, give out a $50 voucher or a $200 voucher, then what happens? Are we going to delete that data? Um, or do we have something else in mind? If we've got a secondary purpose in mind, we actually need to be working through that before we ask for the data. Um, We need to work through whether it's going to be obtained uh, by consent. The Privacy Information Commissioner has said privacy consents need to be informed, voluntary, current and specific. So that goes to why are we asking for the data and and what are we doing with it. Um, Will there be circumstances where we're actually requiring workers to provide this information and if so We need to be clear when we're requesting that information, what are the potential negative consequences for workers who who don't want to or who refuse to provide that data. Uh, And then we need to be really clear about what we're going to be using the information for, whether, um, for example, we'll be providing this to to third parties, um, whether we'll be providing it overseas, whether we'll be providing it to clients or suppliers who are requesting this information down the track. and all of that needs to be worked through at the time we're asking for the vaccination status just to make sure that we comply with our privacy obligations in in relation to requesting that data
0: so we can do it we just need to navigate very very carefully (laughs) through it um turning to the stick and everyone's favorite question about whether we can mandate vaccinations mark I'm really keen to bring you in here. What's your sense of how business are currently grappling with this issue? I mean, do you think that business, it might be controversial, but do you think the business actually needs to step up to mandate? I mean, you won't be able to go to the football or go to a beer at a pub in Sydney without being vaccinated. So for business, is no clear decision better than a clear decision one way or another.
3: Well thanks Wendy and thanks for the comments from Alyssa and from narrator. I think narrator really showed some of the pitfalls about um, getting to a mandate um, decision but before we get there there's really a series of issues I think that businesses are stepping through. Um, And the first one is, why mandate? Why why do it? Is it for the safety of your workers or safety of your customers? Frankly, is it economic? It's to minimise the risk of infection in the workplace, which might produce a shutdown or a whole lot of your staff having to go into isolation and then your productivity takes a hit. Is it to be attractive to talent and customers who in the future might only want to interact with the vaccinated um, uh, workforce? Um, Is it to meet the requirements of the people you deal with, government agencies? Um, Frankly, is it just to be a good citizen to help reopen things or even one I heard the other day, it's to inject some hope, um, some hope into your staff, to your talent to get out of this lockdown bear trap um, that's been imposed on us or is it one or more of those? So I think, you know, a bit of advice would be spend a bit of time on why you would mandate and it strikes me that a lot in the business communities are really at one of four stages uh, across a range. Uh, first stage, if you're considering vaccination for your workforce, is do nothing. Second stage is encourage. Third stage is incentivise. And the fourth stage is, is coerce. And that's, uh, that's where man- mandating vaccines um, sits. It strikes me most businesses, a little bit, as, as Alyssa was sharing with us for HSF, most businesses are at the encourage and incentivise stages. So things like um, communications endorsing vaccines, time off to attend, use of sick leave if you need to recover after your vaccine, all of those things sort of start to fall into the mix. I think though, if you go the extra step to mandating vaccines, there's a couple of factors to think about. One is your industry and your competitors. So the airline industry seems to be very much moving towards the coercion stage. Um, And I predict other industries will go the same way. Um, frankly, the level of face-to-face interactions you have in your workplaces, um, also the culture and workforce composition, do you have to deal with your unions and work with them to bring them along on whatever policy you decide? Um, frankly also public health orders, there's a number in business have been very vocal about wanting more public health orders, so just tell us what to do. Um, I think it's very, very clear now that at least in Australia, The government and its agencies will not step in with clear-cut mandating requirements, except when in high-risk situations. If you're an abattoir or you're aged care, um, you might get a public health order. So don't, if I was a business, I wouldn't be waiting for a public health order to to make the decision for me. I think there's another question that's worth thinking about, and I will give a view, um, and that is, who should you mandate the vaccine for? Uh, Everyone's talking about their staff, but the one I heard the other day was also their families if most people are actually picking up the, the virus from the family's environment can you ask their families to be vaccinated I suspect the lawyers will tell me there's no legal basis for that but you might you might want to think about it by at least offering to families of your employees um, workplace vaccinations um, customers um, you know we seen Qantas do that um, but even suppliers so again um, once you think about this think about who uh, the other thing I thought was interesting, and Alyssa mentioned this a bit, it's relevant to look to places overseas who are ahead of us on the reopening journey, and much of the world, frankly, is moving closer to the, co- to the coerced response. However, that International Experience suggests that accessibility, I think Melissa um, said easy, make it easy, um, accessibility is, is as important as coercion telling people they have to do something and then making it hard for them to do it is not a very good recipe for engagement or success. So I think what um, a lot of businesses are doing, they're thinking about mandatory vaccination in the round, and it is part of a a formula that includes COVID safe environments, frankly, rapid antigen testing, which will be the next big issue we need to get on top of, um, education, consultation and surveys, um, and probably workplace vaccinations, particularly for booster shots. So to come back to your question, should should business mandate vaccinations and step up, move to the coerce stage? Um, I think it depends on your circumstances. Uh, it also, um, I think is something you shouldn't wait for clear government direction on, form a view now. Um, and I think it's very clear that the future will be more complicated and involve more cost for the unvaccinated. So that's where I would take it.
0: Definitely agree with that. Now turning to the lawyer in the room, Nick, I'm just keen from an employment law perspective. I mean, one of the key issues um, is whether employers directing employees to be vaccinated, are giving them a reasonable and lawful direction. So two-stage tests, is it reasonable, is it lawful? How does this play out for mandatory vaccination? I know there's lots of views out there. I'm keen on yours on this issue.
4: I see. I get to deal with the stick aspect, which is always exciting. So. get some of the the, the, um, sort of the carrot aspect Uh, that's right Wendy I think it's important to remember the most significant legal issues sort of arise not in the decision about which stage we're at Uh, it's more when we get to the co-est stage uh, it's about how employers can go about enforcing the policy and how you deal with employees who for a variety of reasons can't or won't comply with that policy going forwards Uh, in really basic terms, employees are under a contractual obligation to observe lawful and reasonable direction. So there's two parts: it. is it lawful and is it reasonable? And then a the failure to comply with that lawful and reasonable direction becomes a valid reason for discipline action or potentially termination of employment, employment arrangement. Um, on its face, this has simple enough, um, but it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly that the specific circumstances of employment, which feeds into reasonableness, will vary immensely between industries locations employers um the roles performed by an employee and the risks around cover that that employee and the people they interact with come to so it's it it seems like a simple test on its face but it's really not when you're trying to work out what's reasonable that's what the question we keep getting asked by clients on a day-to-day basis Um, so if deal with the first part in most lawfulness in most cases it'll be law a direction to comply with the policy mandated vaccinations will be lawful subject even when you don't have a public health order or a specific underlying uh, statute which requires it Um, for a direction to be lawful it's got to be consistent with your contract consistent with an award or an enterprise agreement that applies underneath it's also going to be consistent with any laws that apply for example anti-discrimination an area to talk about privacy laws and work health and safety laws so for example a a direction to mandate vaccinations won't be uh, lawful if it violates an express protection under an enterprise agreement, for example, that protects employees from having to be vaccinated. Similarly, we'll get to it probably a bit later on, Uh, a direction won't be lawful if it's framed in plainly discriminatory terms. For example, it's without carve-outs or exemptions for medical medical exceptions. so in most situations, we're telling clients that they can ensure mandatory vaccination direction is lawful by just looking at their workplace insurance, looking at the contracts that apply underneath, and looking at the laws and obligations that apply overall. Where it becomes tricky and the, the, everyone grappling with is what is reasonable and what what constitutes a reasonable direction is probably less established. Many employers have been looking at sort of some of the case law around um, mandatory flu vaccinations, particularly in aged care and childcare sectors, where it was where it was quite considered that that an ability for an employer to terminate an employer who refuses to take a flu vaccination was acceptable in those circumstances. Um, and there's some analogies we can draw from that. But I think probably the main thing is that COVID is different and the Delta variant is different. And there's probably even a greater support for reasonableness of such a direction. If you think about the, the dangers that COVID can force, can, what we've seen in terms of the dangers of COVID, it's the contractability and the impact it has more broadly on employees and the public more generally when you look at the impacts of it going forwards. Um, the cases in those six help, but they're not really enough. So again, uh, many workplaces, that they'll be compelling factors to support the reasonableness sort of direction. And we've also seen in the last couple of months, regulators like Work Ombudsman and the um, Safe Work Australia provide guidance on what will be, will, will be and what might be reasonable in most circumstances. Um, some of that is useful, some of it's, it's well-intended, some of it's not easy to apply, some of it's not very clear. If you look at the FWA guidance, for example, um, it really looks at assisting employees to answer what, what is reasonable in two key ways. It looks at factors that might be relevant to including the nature of the workplace, the extent of community transmission of COVID-19 in the location where the direction is to be given, and the employee's circumstances and duties. And then divides the work being performed into four broad tiers, which range from employees who regularly Interact with high-risk individuals, which is sort of tier one. So if you think of people in aged care and in healthcare environment, and then right down to tier four, which is you know employees who mainly work from home and don't have the interaction with other employees and more susceptible people. Um, guidance from the FWO is not determinative and as I said it can be difficult to apply and we're finding that larger clients are really going on their own making their assessments themselves and leaving smaller clients who don't have those same resources make it much more difficult to make that assessment. The difficulties we see we found through clients with the FWO's sort of uh, assessment of reasonable it that um, things like the extent of community transmission of COVID in the location of the directions to be given changes from day to day. If you look at the way that Delta spread in Melbourne and, and Sydney. We had a zero, what we call donor days, day in Melbourne with zero cases of community transmission. Now we're up in the four hundreds within a matter of a couple of months. Um, it doesn't look at the way in which. Um, Larger employers, in particular, interact with each other. A person that might be in a Tier 1 role or Tier 2 role not necessarily might have to deal with people in other roles and work from home or coming to an office space. Now, I know, if, for example, Qantas, they have you know frontline staff. But also, those frontline staff also interact with people who aren't frontline staff. So where do you draw the line and how do you apply that? I suppose the third factor is it also is, how do you take into account the impact of a COVID infection or a COVID outbreak within your in your business and the overall impact, overall impact on your viability of the business. We've seen in Victoria, for example, in the last week, significant disruption to our regional whale service V-line because of a COVID outbreak, and the purely and simply not availability of drivers because people have been asked to isolate going forwards. So again, the guidance from the FWA is not determinative, and it gets, comes it comes and says itself. It's on a case-by-case basis going forwards. Um, as we've seen with the Delta variant, what is reasonable will, t- been, will change from day to day. And, there's no, and we've got to really consider, the employers need to consider their own specific circumstances. We're back to saying, what is reasonable for you? Um, high profile employers over the last couple of months have announced mandatory vaccine policies. We've given an example of Qantas. Telstra did it recently for their frontline workers. Virgin have done it because of their industry. SPC was the sort of the most public one. And we've also seen police forces in New South Wales and Queensland doing it. So if Telstra, if you use them as an example, 8,300 of their frontline staff are required to be vaccinated by the 15th of October, and then the 2nd by the 15th of November. Qantas has gone one step further. They've said all staff, it's mandatory for all their staff, so all of its 22,000 work- to- workers will be fully vaccinated by uh, the by end of, end of March 2022. Um, I think the thing to touch on in developing a policy going forward is really not to look at um, the actual development of the policy and who, who it applies to, who doesn't apply to, it's going to be important to focus on exemptions. We'll get to it in a minute about compliance and reasonable will depend on how you apply those exemptions and how you apply those exceptions. And what we've been hearing from our clients is that that's a really that's where the focus needs to be. How many people do you allow to be exempt from the, vaccine, from the mandatory vaccine direction? How many people do you allow to come into the workforce? Now, Lisa talked about how we deal with that going forwards and how do you how do you deal with people have valid reasons how do you deal with people who don't have valid reasons how do you deal with people who say well if you're going to allow someone with an exemption in the workforce I'm not going to come in and work next to them those are the sort of questions that need to be sorted out in advance uh, quite quickly before the policy is introduced and you need to understand the impacts of that going forwards things we talked about in doing that is, is really communicating with the employees, which Alyssa talked about understanding and keeping that dialogue going. And then also having a plan. How, how broad are we gonna make these exemptions going forwards? How, how many people will be allowed to work from home or another, what other steps can we put in place? Is rapid testing a solution? So if a person is not able to be vaccinated or can't be vaccinated, is, is, a, is a testing regime appropriate going forward? So there are the things that we really need to think about before trying to enforce a policy and they'll really play into what's reasonable and what's not reasonable.
0: I think it's going to be definitely one issue to watch as um, the enforcement of policies does start and there's increasing um, court and commission challenges on this issue and hopefully we'll get a bit more guidance on that going forward Nerida I'm keen to bring you in here as um, the safety guru things are changing daily particularly in New South Wales how does safety laws um, Come into play, and what other legal requirements do we need to think about? I think one of the questions that we often get is what happens if we don't mandate? Can we actually be prosecuted for that as a business? Uh, sure. So I, I, I'll start with the second part of that question. We do get that a lot. What
2: happens if we don't mandate vaccinations? Do we have a legal obligation to do so? Um, at this stage, in the most part, unless there's public health orders which apply that, that we have to monitor or um, you know, assure, ensure are being complied with, there's no clear legal obligation for us to mandate vaccinations. And you will have seen recently National Cabinet actually asked jurisdictional safety regulators to amend their statement of regulatory intent to make it clear that making vaccination voluntary in the workplace would not result in a uh, WHS prosecution. Now again that that doesn't have the force of law but it does suggest um, how regulators and and how the government are thinking through these issues and that is in the most part there is a decision to be made about you know where on that scale of doing nothing to mandating vaccinations each organization wants to sit. Um, I would agree with what Mark said I think if you're thinking through um, the safety case here, you spend some time on the why. Why are we doing this? What is our risk-based thinking? That will help uh, as we go through a, a consultation process. It will, um, you know, will provide the story forever in front of an industrial dispute over the process. What is the thinking through? What is the risk-based decision-making? So firstly, you, you put together your, your safety case, your, your, your risk assessment of the issues. Um, And then you think through some of the issues about timing and phasing of any approach that you wanna take having regard to supply and accessibility which we've talked about and which should become less of an issue towards the end of the year. Um, A key issue in safety, under safety laws and also potentially under um, enterprise agreements and awards is this issue of do we have an obligation to consult and what does that mean? Uh, you do have an obligation to consult if you're thinking through bringing in a mandatory vaccination policy which will apply to your workers it does give rise to an obligation to, to consult under WHS laws and in the most part we're approaching this as a unified process with the industrial consultation arrangements as well so you can design a process that covers off on both of them um, consultation apart from being a legal obligation also will give you a sense of you can flesh out the issues amongst the workforce. You can you can get a sense of what the resistance or the likelihood of claims are, um, and it does give you an opportunity to to respond to work to work work feedback. Um, so if we're thinking through, well, what does WHS law require us to do in order to consult? We need to provide an opportunity for affected employees to um, provide their views and contribute to decision making. Practically, how do you do that? A lot of organisations are providing electronic platforms for workers to provide feedback. They're running town hall type meetings, you know, that there are various forums, depending on the nature of your workforce, the nature of your health and safety committees, uh, you know, industrial issues, you can tailor a consultation process that works. Um, we need to make sure there's prompt consideration of, of matters that come up during the consultation pro- process. and. Um, A lot of the issues that come up during the consultation process will will be some of the hesitancy that we will expect to see, you know, they're the same views that are being raised on Facebook and in the media. So we should should expect a lot of those types of questions and issues to be raised and it can be really useful to have a, you know, an FAQ type document which responds to the consultation process. So we can use that as a bit of a live document. Um, As questions and issues come in we update it and it it provides that feedback to the the workforce um, in real time. Um, So I think that those are some of the issues that that we are working through from making that decision. What do we want to do? Why are we doing it? to how are we going to get to the implementation, implementation of it? Key issue will be how we're consulting with our workers and how we're communicating about it.
0: Turning to some of the exceptions that Nick mentioned before, so obviously Nerida you're advising a lot on once people have decided to go with mandatory vaccinations, what does the rollout look like? What are some mm-hmm. of the exceptions that are people are putting in their policies um, that mean that people don't have to be vaccinated? Yeah,
2: sure. I think once organisations have reached that view of we're going to you know, impose a, bl- a blanket workforce mandate or a mandate in some sections of our workforces to base, based on the level of risk to those workers, uh, practically there will be, in the most part, very few exceptions to, to that mandate. Um, allowing a lot of exceptions to a, a broad vaccination mandate really does get you to a point where you're really undermining the reason for having the policy in place. Um, so there are of course the uh, medical contraindications to vaccination the has provided advice on this there are not many um, recognized medical contraindications to vaccinations of course any other medical reasons which are provided and, and were provided with medical uh, evidence will be considered on a case-by-case basis and that's appropriate um, and then many employers are working in not necessarily an exemption but what what are the circumstances where we might just apply some more flexibility, where we might give somebody some extra time, because even though pregnancy, for example, isn't a medical contraindication to to um, pfizer, that you know we we might just give a pregnant worker some extra time if they have some concerns. you know when can we use that? Um, it's not necessarily an exception, but this this might be just a a sensible time to apply some flexibility, and if so, and if we are imposing exemptions and we are applying flexibility, what do we do to make sure those workers and other workers are still safe in their workplace?
0: It's probably worth bringing you in here, Nick, to talk about discrimination. So um, I can imagine, um, I mean, Nerida, just following on from what you were saying about the medical conditions piece, I know we've already seen this with masks and people giving medical certificates saying, look, I can't wear a mask because I have a medical condition. If we get that situation or perhaps we get a situation where someone from a certain religious background says look we can't take the vaccination because it's against my religion and you're discriminating against me because of my religion by making me get the jab how do we navigate our way through the discrimination framework?
4: Yeah that's right I think Nerida's been really helpfully touched on some of of the practical ways to deal with those in a broader sense not just people who have a prescribed attribute needs to be protected from discrimination legislation but more broadly where there's reluctance or hesitancy or some concern about having vaccinations from a from a legal perspective and we touched on it before there is the the direction to comply with the vaccination vaccination policy needs to be lawful and reasonable and one of the lawful elements of it is ensuring that the policy and its enforcement doesn't amount to unlawful discrimination so as a case with lawful and reasonable direction sort of test for this, there hasn't been any case law as yet, but we expect to see that coming as more and more employers start to produce those policies and we get to points where decisions have to be made about enforcement going forwards where we really get to a point. And we did have a sort of a dry run with masks, particularly in Victoria, uh, where we almost got to a couple of points where there were test cases around employees refusing to wear masks in the workplace and, and how you deal with those situations. We, because of that, that, during the last period of lockdown, but we didn't get to that point because it sort of um, went back to work. But this is gonna come up pretty quickly. Uh, it's easy to see how state and Commonwealth discrimination laws can be invoked in this context, particularly where there's, as you said, legitimate medical reasons or legitimate justified religious reasons for not wearing, for not um, having a vaccination. Um, just importantly to remember, a requirement to be vaccinated is not directly discriminatory and vaccination itself is not a protected attribute, but it might be protected by a discrimination law if there's a requirement that, or a policy that can't be met. So it's actually indirect discrimination. So when we talk about discrimination, we're really talking about indirect discrimination. Importantly, in most cases, um, in order for an unlawful indirect discrimination to ar- arise, it's necessary that requirement be unreasonable in circumstances or not reasonable in circumstances. So we come back again to the same sort of considerations we are thinking about in terms of using the policy in the first place. Um, I think, the way to navigate through this and why we're talking to clients about how to deal with it is really the things that narratives raised and, th- and also coming back to some of the, some of the really important processes that stepped adopted that Alyssa spoke about earlier. Um, we're, in a broad sense, we talk to the, uh, clients about doing two things. We're, one is engaging with the workforce. So you're dealing with consultation, you're dealing with gathering information, you're dealing with understanding the, the sensitivities amongst the workforce, um, talking to people who are reluctant to be vaccinated as well as talking to people who are... Also reluctant to work with unvaccinated people. So working from both sides and understanding where those sensitivities are, uh, and Neri gave some examples of the way this can be done. quantitative to do the survey. Uh, there are other ways. If you're a smaller employer, can do it more directly. And again, coming back, and it's been mentioned before, looking at the exemptions, looking at how you apply. Them. I think Neri made a really good point that the more exemptions or exceptions you actually apply in these sort of circumstances, it undermines the purpose of the policy in any event. So you need to be careful about how that works. And all. what are you going to do? You can't just say everyone can work from home, they might not be practical. At, w- at what point do you say that's enough for exemptions? I know some of our clients are very careful about that. And they're making the point that there will be exemptions or flexibility is probably a better word, but they're going to be tight and tightly controlled and having to thinking about that well and truly in advance before you get to that stage going forwards. So I think the points that are raised by Lissa and narrative before, this is really how to deal with discrimination in the same way you would deal with things that are not necessarily unlawfully protected but reluctance and hesitancy from employers going forwards.
0: Probably a question without notice. I guess the other area where it might come up is if you're mandating vaccinations for future employees because discrimination laws can also apply as part of recruitment.
4: That's right. some I mean, figure that there were more and more advertisements were coming up with a you know, requirement to be vaccinated going forwards. Now that might be a function of those roles being in areas where the public health orders it might be in roles for like people like Qantas or contractors to Qantas as well, but uh, that's exactly going to come up going forward because prospective employees have the same sort of protections that employees have.
0: Yeah, it's definitely one to watch. Um, Mark, I'm just keen to bring you in here. I did see the government's announcement on the no-fault scheme, and, and I'm just keen for your views on how you think this will impact the business community.
3: Thank you Wendy and um, I don't know about all the folks on the webinar but um, I'm struck over just over the last 30 40 minutes just about the level of complexity on these issues and the pace at which they're being dealt with by the community um, and by businesses off an imperfect information base so this is really hard which is why um, it's really important to work out who bears the risk if something goes wrong and some of you may be aware that businesses were lobbying for indemnities for any of those encourage, incentivise and coerce stages that they, they gave. Certainly the doctors, the pharmacists, the vaccine providers were looking for um, coverage for um, loss that a, a vaccinated person might um, suffer as a result of getting vaccinated. Um, so the good news is that on the 28th of August, a no fault um, indemnity scheme was announced. It was cast in terms of a safety net for individuals, those that suffer loss, rather than the broader underwrite of everyone pitching in and getting the nation vaccinated. Um, uh, So I think it's a good news direction um, for business, but not universally good. Um, What do we know? First of all, it's backdated to February 2021, which is when vaccination started. Um, It is expressed to be a single front door for Australians to access compensation, a streamlined and simplified administration, which is good. In fact, claims applications are already being received and it's gonna be administered by Services Australia, so at the federal level, not at the state level. Um, It covers Australians and it covers injury or loss of income due to their COVID-19 vaccine. It covers losses above $5,000, um, and anything in the five thousand to twenty thousand range will be assessed by services Australia anything above twenty thousand will be assessed by independent experts and there 's no apparent upper limit um, if something goes terribly terribly wrong. Um, what don 't we know um, a lot? We have a one and a page one paragraph press release, and no legislation there is no contractual indemnity from the Commonwealth government offered to businesses who support the rollout but but there is some suggestion of an exclusion of some liabilities which might otherwise fall to business. So here's some of the unknowns just to be aware of as you're kind of formulating your decision making. I mean bottom line is if I was a business I wouldn't be assuming that this scheme underwrites all my risk, it doesn't at all. Um, Unknown number one, um, it's unclear on scope. Uh, It says it covers Australians but does it cover non-Australians who are vaccinated in Australia? residents who are not citizens, diplomats, international students, agricultural workers, tourists on visas, all of whom could be in our workforces um, And does it go beyond a vaccinated person? Does it cover a doctor, a pharmacist or a nurse who vaccinated someone, vaccinates someone who gets ill and then makes a claim against that doctor? Still not clear if, if those people are covered. Unknown number two, the extent, what does it actually cover? Um, It talks about injury and loss of income, but does it cover medical or carer costs? Does it cover business interruption costs if the individual actually owns a business as well? Um, Unknown number three is what I would call the first loss. Uh, For for those that were keenly listening, it only covers amounts in excess of $5,000. So who covers the first $5,000? If you're a business and you're encouraging or mandating vaccination or you're providing vaccinations on your workplace, someone suffers loss, are you liable for that first $5,000? Might not sound much, but wait till the class action industry sort of starts to think this through. Um, Unknown number four, um, and I guess this is probably the, if there was one I was to focus on from the business community's uh, perspective, this would be it. And that is, is there an exclusion of liability for those administering the vaccines, doctors and nurses, um, their employers, the vaccine providers, and others who assist in the vaccine program like a landlord um, or, or a business so in other words will the scheme say that individuals can only claim under the scheme and cannot claim for their loss against others and that is the way some no-fault schemes work but we don't know that would be very powerful for business if that exclusion of liability can be introduced into the scheme um, um, and, um, and is actually constitutional um, and then I guess the, the fifth and final um, unknown is, it builds on next point around exclusions. Um, what are the exclusions? So I did hear from a government type that it will not cover loss caused by negligence. Um, um, so, um, you know, that actually might mean there is a, an element of residual liability that, that, that lies with either the vaccine providers or the, the landlords or whoever else is involved. So in summary, I think there's a good... This is a good development to manage the risk that business is exposed to as a part of its vaccine response, whether you go down the encourage, incentivise, or coerce um, mandate um, lanes. However, there's a lot of ambiguity in unanswered components, and any way you look at it, I think there'll be some residual liability for businesses. Uh, There may be an opportunity for business to influence these unknown elements, to be honest, because the draft legislation is not yet in circulation. For those of us old enough to know this might be a little bit like the old days where tax reform was introduced by a press release and it would be between 6 and 18 months before the legislation came out. I think the bottom line is the speed, scale and coverage objectives at the political level will be enhanced by risks being allocated to the Commonwealth to the maximum extent and in the most straightforward way. So um, noting too that these are risks that the Commonwealth as the sovereign with responsibility to pop to, to vaccinate the population already has. So I think um, it's a good development Wendy, but it's not quite the same as having a bespoke contractual indemnity from the Commonwealth given to your business.
0: It's going to be interesting to see how I think it interplays with workers comp as well. Um, sure. yeah. one one to watch how it's practically going to work. Um, Just a few questions. We've had lots of questions come through. I think um, I've tried to touch on as many as I can as we've gone through a couple of questions without notice to our speakers. Um, Nerida, a lot of questions coming through um, by certain um, clients mandating at their site that people have to um, be vaccinated. So um, contractors and other suppliers needing to produce information to that client about um, their own employees and, and their vaccination status of their employees. I'm just wondering if if you're the contractor, how are you going to deal with this issue? I know that we're working with a number of clients on this, but but as things are moving very quickly and more and more clients are coming out to say, no, nah, this site, you have to be vaccinated in order to enter. What are people? What are people thinking about?
2: Uh, it is increasingly common that, that a vaccination mandate is imposed as a condition of site entry. It makes sense that this is the approach taken to whole workplaces. Again, it is just an issue that we need to work through when we're requesting that information. If we if we have collected that information, we're being asked for it by a third party, we need to work through, is it a reasonable request? Do we need to provide as much as they're asking us for? Do we have the consent of the employee or the worker to do that? And if we don't, we should go and get that consent. Um, Some some organisations who are imposing this as a condition of side entry are actually just preferring For visitors and for short-term visitors and and contractors entering on site, they're just asking to cite evidence of vaccination status. So you just show your green tick rather than collect it, which will avoid some of the, the privacy pitfalls as well.
0: And I guess the other piece is if you've got an employee, if you're one of those contractors who has an employee that can't actually access the site, then it's looking at is there work elsewhere that you can move them to? If there isn't, then you might have to go down the disciplinary route, which um, does you expose you to some legal risk, but it is an issue that you're going to have to deal with. Um, Nick, just going back to the reasonable and lawful directions test which is i know something that is really really difficult to deal with do you think um, a direction would be watered down if someone can actually work from home like if you turn around to me tomorrow and say when do you have to be vaccinated um, and I turn around and say no but I could just work from home so we're making a, a an a entry condition of HSF's office that I have to be vaccinated and I can just do my job at home. How do you think that's going to play out?
4: I think that's a good question. Um, I think that's right. It goes back to what I think Mark talked about. when the told, What's the purpose of your policy in the first place? Why are you interested in this case a like a coercive mandated policy? Is it for safety reasons? Is it to protect other employees? If you if an ability to work from home, not interact with anybody else, then obviously that will change the position. It will become less reasonable to inf- insist on someone who doesn't have, have any contact. If I'm sitting here in my little room. I don't meet customers, I don't meet clients, I don't meet you know, my workmates. Um, I, I don't interact with anybody else. Why is it that I need to be vaccinated going forward? And so that's exactly right, the question to ask. But again. Um, Even with HSF, with with our policies, there is a requirement to at least attend the office in some case, when you can, when we're allowed to, in lockdown. So you come back to what's the purpose of the policy and what's the actual requirement to attend the office or not. If there's not an underlying requirement and you can effectively work 100% from home, then yes, of course, that'll get taken into account of reasonableness. But you've got to go back to what what is the purpose, why are we doing it, and what's the nature of work being performed by the person.
3: I wonder, Nick, too, if you've also got to go back to what is the role? So just staying with the Wendy example, you might say, Wendy, you can stay at home and do your job, but hang on, you can't actually see any clients, you can't attend any business lunches, you can't attend any uh, uh, firm social events, and you can't travel um, to go for, for your work. So all of a sudden, actually, the role is different, isn't it? The role started out as something which had all those elements or potentially had those elements. So. I don't know how that works, but it does seem to me this, if you're, if you're going to allow that as a way to manage your talent, you're almost recasting the job. I don't know if you've struck that in, in advising clients yet.
4: That's right. You also think about if you allow one person to work from home almost universally, what does the impact on everybody else have? It's the same, you can make exceptions for one person, but ultimately there'll be an impact at some stage when nine out of 10 people are all working from home. What the one person that has to do that visiting clients traveling there so you have to think about the exactly right but what the what that role is and what it is going forward
0: which is why what the consultation is so important particularly for those yeah. who are really scared to come back into the office and scared of their colleagues who are unvaccinated that that consultation process is just essential to give them that support and and make sure that you're understanding what their concerns are I think that's one of the the things that I've noticed people are really really worried about um, the other thing I'm interested Mark, vaccination hubs, are you seeing many people set them up and do you know if there's any that have been really been successful?
4: Yeah
3: look there's um and there's probably some people on the call who have been involved with them. Um, the, the, the short point is I think and we saw today there's been an announcement that um Um, and Alyssa and I are on a call with the vaccine task force yesterday, there is definitely going to be vaccination hubs. um, I'm talking about workplace hubs rather than government-sponsored hubs, but workplace hubs which are part of the various channels to roll out the vaccines. I think they've been pretty tough to establish. Certainly in Sydney, where I am um, one of the big four banks, wanted to retrofit a bank um, in Parramatta and turn it into a vaccine hub actually it wasn't getting the vaccines and finding nurses um, to put them in arms. It was actually getting through all um, the admin to have the right distancing and the right airflows and all the, the 101 things that go into it. So we're not quite yet at a plug in play for workplace vaccinations. Um, there are two things I think I'd put on into people's minds. Um, the first is the government went out with a tender this week for to accredit providers um, who would be able to to get um, vaccine supplies from federal government and then be contracted to workplaces like HSF or Westpac whatever it might be and administer those vaccines on site for a fixed price Um, um, so it'll all be kind of regulated in in that way and that'll be closer to plug-and-play and And a bit of the feedback we've given to government is please make it workable for small businesses to next point big businesses have resources they can probably flex to do it Um, And look the second thing is most businesses are actually thinking about this not so much for the vaccine rollout but for boosters and I know there's that's another issue that's floating out there but it, it feels like the weight of opinion is moving towards boosters being required and I think you know with the benefit of time and the benefit of a streamlined government program if you're a big business, why wouldn't you try and um, have some sort of um, workplace scheme for boosters, be it on site or you know vouchers to use at your your pharmacy? I mean, Alyssa's looked at this sort of stuff, but yeah, I think um, I think I think hubs around places of work will become increasingly um, used and popular. if done well.
0: I'm just going to throw it out to everyone. We've got a few minutes left. Any last words or anything you want to leave with us as a
4: cohort? Nerida, perhaps I'll start with you. Thanks, Wendy. I
2: think that this is an issue that is just changing so quickly, uh, and it's been really impressive working with organisations who are thinking through not just what can we do, what should we doing, what can we do to get backs in arms and support our workers get back to work safely. So I think, you know. Organisations are landing in different places, but all very much with that same kind of intention in mind, which is how can how can we get our workers back in the office? So there's a lot of hope, I think, in in this work that we're doing at the moment.
0: Nick, continuing the hope theme.
4: <laughs> you yeah, hopeful? I think hope's the right theme. The other the other thing is just to just because one employer is doing something doesn't mean that you have to do some, the same thing, and then. I know as one of our larger clients who rolled out a pretty public vaccination mandated policy, they had a lot of requests for copies of the policy to be shared and they've been reluctant to provide that because they just want to focus on this is for us, this is what we did, these are the questions we asked in our survey, Um, you need to do your own research, your own risk assessments, own analysis and get to that point, where are you along the spectrum first, in terms of the coerce and courage that Mark talked about. Rather than just focus rather than focusing on what everyone else is doing, focus on what you need to do for your own workforce is going forwards. And think about all the elements to it before actually rolling something out. That's
0: a very good point. Alyssa, any last words for us?
1: Yeah well, thanks, Wendy. just on the same same vein, I mean I different organisations are going to end up in different places. And I think it's really important from your employment brand, your talent strategy, how your people feel engaged, is about how you go about reaching that point. Um, Would be my final
3: words. Thanks,
1: Wendy.
0: Mark, last words
3: um just to, to build on that i've been struck by um, businesses actually not just even looking at all these issues from their self- interests but for the community and the national interest in one client i spoke to about this indemnity issue said yeah i feel those issues but we're still going to do it um, um uh, because it's the right thing for our people and we think it'll be the right thing for the business as well and it supports the nation so it's actually I th- that was actually a really hopeful discussion and to Nick's point everyone's got a different risky appetite so I don't want to sort of suggest that that's right for everyone but it really was quite encouraging to hear it put in those terms.
0: Beautiful end to a very hopeful seminar hopefully. Um, this won't be the last time that we speak about this issue, um, it is changing very rapidly. We're looking to host another session. Um, and this will also be available online. So, hope that you found this very helpful. Um, Have a good week, stay safe, and thank you, everyone.
4: Thanks, Wendy.